trying to make it a good morning as far as the sound. Um, good to see everybody. Is that going to be a problem? Let, let's go ahead and pray, and then before we look into God's word, Father, we thank you for this time together that we have to come and gather and to approach you and to ask for your blessing and your help. We pray for our church, that you would help us to draw closer to you, understand your word. We pray for our nation, that you would help us in this difficult time. We pray for elections coming up, Lord, that good people would be elected to posts throughout the nation, that honor, people that honor you just with um, being uh, sensible and, and honest and good. And Father, now we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and take us to another level. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen some very interesting teachings coming from the Lord Jesus, teachings that were very different from the teachings that the people he was talking to had heard, you know, over the years. And they had gotten into a certain, I'll call it a certain groove of teachings <clears throat> under the, the people that were the teachers of the time, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes, the teachers of the law. But this morning, I think we're going to get into something maybe more interesting than we've seen yet. <clears throat> so I'd like you at first to follow along with the first two verses, and they will be from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 and 22, and then we'll just make a few comments about those after we read those. It's not moving, Daniel. Thank you. Good to have technical geniuses back there. I didn't mean that jokingly. I meant truly. <laughs> Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is, means something like empty-headed, foolish, even, they even have the word blockhead in there, remind me of Peanuts, Charlie Brown, but <clears throat> is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that sounds very strict, doesn't it? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but can anybody remember a time when you were angry at someone else? Someone else in the faith? 
You know, when Jesus says a brother or sister, he's talking about <clears throat> the Jewish nation, people of the Jewish nation, because they were children of God, chosen of God, and so they were brothers and sisters in the faith. But what a statement. Anyone angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone calling someone a fool or a blockhead will be in dangers of the fires of hell. And I'm thinking, should we just give up and go home? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Well, you know, as we know, the crucial key in finding meaning of a writing is to first get the context. Because words can have different meanings in different contexts. <clears throat> but as we go back again and look at the context that Jesus was teaching in, Judaism of the first century was steeped in the teachings of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. And these Jewish religious leaders, at least at the time of Jesus, they ended up becoming very formulaic, meaning that they basically reduced a lot of the Jewish law down to just following formulas. You know, <clears throat> they would say how far you could, how many steps would be working on the Sabbath. And they, they, they got a lot of the laws down to things that they could measure, and then that way they could keep control over the people. And they could tell them exactly how much they should be doing or shouldn't be doing, or, you know, all those things that allowed them to be the religious policemen. And they became the standard of holiness. And they determined, and they would work the practices on themselves and look down on others who wouldn't do it the exact way they did it. But their, their external holiness <clears throat> just devolved into acts that did not come from the heart. Just things they did for show. And they liked to be seen of people as they stopped on the corners and prayed. Parading around with their outward, external holiness acts. And Jesus said on the inside, they were like dead men's graves. So in these teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is really cutting through the empty external sideshow and he's going straight for the heart. What's in your heart? What do you really believe? Where is your heart with God? And he isn't accepting the religious leader's standard of holiness or their phony outward religious behavior and practices. He's saying that God looks into the intentions and the attitudes of the person's heart. So in these two verses that we were looking at, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. 
and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. <clears throat> so Jesus says that their teachers have said, if you murder, you're going to be subject to the court, to judgment. And then Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you, it's not only the one who actually commits physical murder, but the one who has that same kind of hatred in his heart would be liable to God's judgment. Like, you know, wishing a person would die or wishing that they could kill the person and they would if they could get away with it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus <clears throat> is moving past the externals and going straight to the heart attitude. You know, in the next passage, which we won't get into today, it's the one we're pretty familiar with, that Jesus says, whoever looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's the heart. It's the intention. And the, <clears throat> the anger that would lead to murder makes a person as guilty as the person who murders because Jesus is looking upon the heart. And, you know, there are even instances in the Gospels when the, the Pharisees are treating him a certain way, and he says, and I know that in your hearts you, you're wanting to kill me. And, of course, they deny it, but they, that is exactly right, and he knows it. But what about someone calling someone a fool? That sounds rather strict, doesn't it? Well, again, you know, we're going to this hard attitude. You know, to call someone a fool in the way that Jesus is talking about is to really place yourself in this arrogant position of superiority to others. It's the person who looks down on others and calls them the riffraff or calls them the lowlife and puts themselves above them, superior to them. And, of course, that's what the, the Pharisees did. So a lot of this in the Sermon on the Mount, he's against, you know, he's speaking against what the Pharisees did regularly. <clears throat> and to put yourself above others and look down on them and criticize them and act like they're not worthy, they're not as worthy of God as you are, that's an attitude that's condemned by God. It's an attitude that we can all fall into, you know, but it shows a serious heart problem and does not really help or befit the follower of God. And you know, again, the religious leaders of that day, they were experts at this, of looking down at others and thinking themselves so much holier and criticizing others for not being holy, for not following the law, for being uneducated sinners, they considered themselves so far above the average person. And even they would see somebody with a physical deformity, and that was pretty widespread. And they would say, you know, who sinned, this person or their parents? And again, their attitudes and their thinking were so far off the mark. You can tell how far off the mark they were because they even condemned the very Son of God who came down to save everyone. And they saw him as a sinner. 
So how far off the mark would you have to be to call God a sinner? So what is a person to do who wants to truly follow God from our hearts? Well, in this specific area of how we treat one another, how we treat others in the body of Christ, at being at odds with someone, if we find ourselves engendering an attitude of dislike or even hate or disdain, or we find a significant barrier between us and another person, look how Jesus tells us to handle that matter. He's already said we should not criticize one another like this or have, you know, intense hatred toward one another. But then he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So basically, what he's saying is make reconciliation, be reconciled to your brother or sister whom you have something against. He says, walk away from the gift and take care of the reconciliation first. Now, you know, I'm tempted to think in an area like this, according to my reasoning, that our first priority would would be to bring the gift to God. Like, you know, make sure that you're right with God. Make sure you've done everything toward the Lord and be lined up with God. Then go reconcile with your brother. But then you know that just could be me as a pastor not wanting to see somebody walk out before they give their offering. But I think the instruction, from this instruction, we may deduce that reconciliation with a brother or sister is so important that God would rather us take care of that before bringing him our offering. And then maybe something somewhat similar is that God would rather us be coming to him with an offering as a reconciled child of God and not with these bitterness, not bitterness and anger on our hearts. So I think in this passage, we can see that this matter of being reconciled with our brothers and sisters is very, very important to God. He wants his children to be reconciled. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're a parent, you can relate to the pain of seeing two of your children that are always against one another, even maybe growing up and hating one another. And then on the other side of that scenario, I mean, when, in, in that situation, you feel lost. <clears throat> but then on the other side of that scenario, how great it feels when your children love one another and sacrifice for one another and are ready to help one another. And so we can see the heart of God in that. And now we have one last example of two children of God at odds with each other and Jesus' instruction for them. He says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. So we got 
somebody taking a brother or sister to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. <clears throat> now, if you were to just kind of picture yourself going to court against someone, your first thought isn't how much you like that person. Because most likely, someone is very, very angry with you and they're taking you to court, or you feel cheated so badly that you feel like you have to take someone else to court. So it's often a situation wrought of anger or hurt or feeling cheated or mistreated. So most of the time, we would not be in the mood to give in to that person or maybe even try you know, to, to make a compromise. But Jesus is saying... In that situation where we would easily be angered, resentful, you know, uh, feel cheated, he's saying, do everything to settle the matter before you arrive at the court. And I believe that reveals how important it is to God for his children to be reconciled. The thing that we feel is so important that we can't let it go, God is saying, Settle it. Be reconciled. That's the most important. And of course, this is such a countercultural attitude to ours, isn't it? We are so worried that someone is going to get the best of us. I mean, that's our top concern. That person's going to get the best of us. We can't let them do that. And we take it very personally. Or that someone is going to get away with something. We don't mind getting away with something. We don't want somebody else getting away with something. We have that enormous sense of righteousness when it means someone else gets theirs and we are proven right. It makes us feel good and righteous when that person gets caught or stopped. And you know who doesn't think that way? That's just so natural, isn't it? That's just so natural <clears throat> for us to think that way. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has clearly wronged you? No question about it. And it could be something very significant, or it may be something somewhat small. But yet it seems to you so wrong for that person to just go free. And you say, it's the principle that matters. I'm only doing it for the principle. But then you have this friend or spouse who tells you, let it go. And you say, what? What do you mean, let it go? He did me wrong. It wouldn't be right for me to let him get away with it. I would be doing him a disservice if I didn't make him pay for his wrong. How could he learn not to do it? And you're searching for any Bible verse you can think of that might sound like it would justify your attitude. 
And you're searching and searching. And after spouting off for several minutes, and your friend or spouse or whoever is sitting there listening, they again say, which is so aggravating, they say, let it go. You didn't listen to anything I said, did you? And they say, forget it. First of all, don't you hate it when a so-called friend says something like that to you? <clears throat> you know, you get all worked up about something. You're breathing fire. And your friend is sitting there cool as a cucumber, telling you something that deep down you really know, but you don't want to hear it. Now, you all might be wondering how I can explain this in such detail. <laughs> and so clearly, as if maybe I've experienced it myself. <clears throat> but I'm going to leave you wondering about that. Now, really, I could be the poster boy for that saying, it's the principle of the thing. It's not that I'm worried about losing this matter, losing in this matter. I'm just fighting for the principle. You know, it makes your fighting sound so much more righteous if you're fighting for the principle, not for yourself. But you know, I had a friend in my young adult years. He's a friend for a long time. But in my young adult years, we would get into a situation like that, and he would just look at me and say, hey, it isn't that big of a deal. Let it go. And I'd go, oh, don't tell me that. And he would say, just, you know, pay two times in a row. Pay, you know, pay for gas two times in a row, even though it was really his turn. Just let it go. Well, you know, Jesus is saying here, if your adversary is taking you to court, Try to reconcile. Because he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And peacemaking can be pretty hard. It can go pretty strong against what we want to do. And you know, your adversary may be in the wrong. But Jesus is saying, see if there's a way to work it out. And that way is the pathway of humility, isn't it? It requires possibly a loss of some sort, a giving up. It may even cause us some embarrassment. Like we're allowing that person to get away with something. And we may even be afraid of looking weak. Or maybe even saying, people thinking, well, he must have been wrong because he gave in. But you know, what we're seeing in this passage is Jesus saying, be concerned about reconciliation. <clears throat> Jesus isn't too concerned about who wins the argument, is he? He wants us reconciled. And so when we're fighting in this mindset, we're not thinking of reconciliation, are we? We're thinking of winning. And Jesus is thinking of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters becoming one. 
you know, so much of the New Testament and Jesus talking with his disciples and talking about what the church is going to be, so much of it is becoming one and becoming one with Christ and becoming one with one another. And it's not about winning the battles or who allows someone to get away with something or who is so on the ball that they never allow someone to get away with something. And you remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, they were taking each other to court, and he just couldn't believe it. He said, what? You're taking your brother to court in front of an unsaved judge? And you're letting them see that fighting in the church? Wouldn't you rather take the wrong? No. But that's where we got to get to, isn't it? How do we become able to think that way, God's way, where we're rather able, where we, we should be rather willing to take the wrong than to, to score the victory? I think the only way we can get there is just by being in God's word. As we're in the word of God regularly and the Holy Spirit takes that word and applies it and encourages us with it and gives us understanding in it and we <clears throat> hear teachings on the word of God and we spend time in prayer with the word of God, I believe that's when we slowly change from this so common attitude of wanting to get everybody back, wanting to win every argument, to just saying reconciliation is more important. Becoming one is more important. So the bottom line basically is that if we want to live by kingdom of God principles, If we want to be a reflection of what the kingdom of heaven is all about, and you see, we have this kingdom coming where everything is going to be perfect and, and love will be complete, and we will know the Savior, we will see him in person, and we will be able to look upon God, and then everything will be right, and we won't have any cheating or scandals or you know, people being led astray people taking advantage of each other. But here we are in this present time, and we are part of that kingdom of God. The churches are little kingdoms of God waiting for the full kingdom to come. And it's not going to be as perfect here as it will be in the future, but we're supposed to be a picture of the coming kingdom of God while we're waiting for it to come in its fullness. So, then we need to pick up the attitude that, you know, <clears throat> coming together, reconciliation is more important than winning an argument. And we, we must only want good for our brothers and sisters in the faith, even when it costs us. And we must never look down upon another person and thinking of them as less because they are a creature of, of, the, of the Lord and in the image of God. 
strive for reconciliation in all of our broken and hurt relationships. Sometimes we must take the loss to do it. It's a whole different set of values from the kingdoms of man. And sometimes it's much more difficult, but the results are much more glorious. So we sit here as part of the kingdom of God on this present earth as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come in the future. And let us just remember to love one another for love is of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it teaches us in so many different ways, so many different examples through different teachers and different stories. And Lord, that it's not just this long list of rules, but Lord, it's so varied and interesting. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit works through your word and that he encourages us, builds us up, turns us into different people as we depend upon him to help us. And Lord, may we love one another. May we really be reconcilers, peacemakers. And may we be a picture of the coming kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.